Hi, I'm Lucy Wright. I'm Juliet Maxim and this is Life on Rails. We both work in PR at Greater Anglia and we're taking you behind the scenes of one of the largest train companies in the UK. We're talking to a range of people from site managers to engineering experts as well as some special Greater Anglia celebrities. In this spring episode we speak to the co-presenter of ITV News Anglia, David Whiteley. I remember a former colleague of mine said to me many 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 years ago he said you have to have one good question and then listen so I think that's that's something very special. Our resident bears guru Ken Strong. Make sure you specify exactly the journey you want to make and if you're making a return journey put in both ways at the one time because sometimes a return ticket will be cheaper than two singles which is a mistake some people make they buy a single and a single back which might end up costing them more money Andrew Goodrum Greater Anglia's client and programme director and mum just turned around and said I can't believe this she said this has really changed our, our whole travel experience this is lovely that we can all travel together as a family and one of our first female drivers Sarah Swanston if you speak to my gran I told her what I was about to do she said to me don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble and please don't swear. I promised her I wouldn't. Juliet and I will also be giving you tips and tricks on how to find a seat on a busy train. To kick things off though, we're going to speak to the Greater Anglia site manager, Phil Hogg. Hi Phil, thanks for joining us on the Greener Anglia segment of the podcast and we're speaking today in a staff garden by Norwich Station. Just behind you, there's a honeybee hotel, which I believe you built. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? Yeah, I did this bit of a little scheme, which we're trying to spread throughout the network in Norfolk. The honeybee is close to extinct, so we're trying to promote it where we build these. This one's made out of a normal pallet with a bit more trimming on, uh, of, of wood. As you can see, it's been here over a year now and they're actually starting to use it. So it's serving its purpose. So it looks like a giant rabbit hutch almost with a little bit of chicken wire. And then it's got a lovely roof and lots of logs with holes in it. And some of the holes are even blocked in a little bit. Why is that? That is actually the the honeybee at the end of the season will actually put their eggs in there and the pollen. They hibernate and then break out the next day and the babies will actually come out as well. So, so we're actually going to have some baby bees in this garden yeah, then? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And then they'll start pollinating the garden again. And then it just goes on and on over the season. So why did you build this honeybee hotel? Are you interested in bees? Do you keep bees? Yeah, well, I think everyone who's interested in the environment, they have they go for one subject. Obviously, I, I looked at this from another company before I started with Great Angler. And I did a project there and it worked and it, it just got larger and larger. So I thought, well, I did it there, I want to do it here. So you're like single-handedly saving the bees in Norfolk? Well, no, it's starting to, the word is starting to spread. More staff are doing it. Uh, they're doing it in the gardens where you can make a little honeybee farm or hotel. We have got other schemes this year where we're going to promote it in our, on our rural stations. What is your job? How come you got to, to do this? I'm a site manager for Great Angler, so I, I look after any projects or schemes in the Norfolk region. So I come along with quite a lot of scrap wood. I thought instead of throwing it in a skip, why not make some use of it? And that's why I've done this. And you say you've got some more schemes in the pipeline. Is that also using bits and pieces from projects at depots and stations? Yeah, yeah. The, this it's a cage effect. We're calling it the green wall, but we've we've done a little thing to it where it's not just going to be foliage and plants. It's actually going to have logs in for the honeybees as well. Explain that a little bit more. So are you building a green wall and, and where's it going to be? It will be built on site, I stations. I think one of the stations we're looking at is Reedham. 
which is out towards um, Lowestoft. So we're going to start there and see how it works, which I think it'll go fantastic, and then we're going to spread it along that line. And let's see. And so what, what is a green wall, though? Green wall, it's just a timber, or it could be steel, frame. Uh, you put soil in, plants some foliage in, and that'll bloom, and it just looks a lovely effect. And it's all from waste materials. Sounds, sounds absolutely magnificent and, of course, supports the work that our adopters do in, in the gardens across the network where they're improving the biodiversity of our communities and our stations with, with their gardens. With They've got honeybee hotels and bird boxes and, and so on. I hear you were doing something with compost bins as well. Yeah, so we involve the community, we involve local authorities. So the one I've got at the moment is... We have a lot of scrap timber material at the Crown Point. So I'm going to use that with the local authorities' adult learning centre, give them a donate to them and some bricks because they do joinery, brickwork and plastering and paint and decorating. Then them guys or girls who are getting taught will come on site so it'll, it'll give them the experience of a site out from the centre and they're going to build us uh, a compost bin in Norwich Station. Oh, brilliant. Well, I really look forward to seeing the green wall and, in fact, green walls across the network. And I'm sure our customers will enjoy seeing those too. And it's just fantastic what you're doing to promote biodiversity in in the area. So thanks very much for telling us all about it. And thanks for everything you're doing, Phil. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's look at the future and let's see what comes out of these green walls. Absolutely. It's now time for Meet a Member of Staff and our guest for this episode is Sarah Swanston. Sarah qualified as a train driver over 25 years ago and she was the first ever female train driver in Norwich. She's still a qualified driver and you never know, she might be driving your train right now. But these days, Sarah is the right time railway manager focused on improving and maintaining punctuality. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, yeah. <laughs> Can you please describe your current role? So, as you say, I'm the right time, Rari Madge, it's a mouthful, but it is about performance within the route. So I work quite locally with um, customer service teams, train service delivery team, other ops teams and stuff. And we look at issues within the route that we can do to then improve the, the punctuality of the train services for the customers. And just talk me through your journey. How did you come to be Norwich's first female train driver? I had a vision when I was youngster. I was going to basically go in the police force. My Dad well and truly put me off that idea and he was the one who suggested I put in to become a train driver which I just laughed because you never saw female train drivers. So for work experience when I was at school I applied to go and do two weeks with the railway to see what it was like and I loved it so much I put my application form there and then in and I still had about 18 months left to go at school. Once obviously left school I went for a job interview I got asked to come for a job interview. There's a little bit of a test and an interview. Luckily, I got the job interview and I became on their railway training scheme, which used to be the old youth training scheme. Obviously, you can't do shift work till you're 18, so they give you a what they call a junior railway women's position. And mine was on the station servicing team, going around all the local stations and making sure they're maintained and gardens are kept tidy and the stations are all cleaned. Then I got to be 18 and I got my very first proper job on the railway, which is a carriage cleaner at Norwich Station. And I worked with some really, really, really nice people. Hard work, I have to say. It's one of the hardest, I think, for, for what you have to deal with sometimes. And then at 17 and a half, you could, I could then apply for their assessment to become a train driver. And that's an all-day assessment. 
aptitude tests and colour light tests and how you're reacting and stuff. Luckily, I managed to pass that. I then got the position of what they termed them was a trainman driver, they called it. But to make it a bit more PC, they put the train and then the bracket, W-O bracket man. So I became a train woman driver. Eventually, I got on a driver's course, I think, in 1996. And then I got my first driver's job in October 1997. And that's where I thought I'd stay. If I'm honest, I just thought, wait, that's it. I'm going to stay as a train driver. Crappy doing this. Then I became a driver instructor and I quite liked doing that. And then I got to sign all the routes up to London. And then it was like, oh, what next? What do I do next? And then a driver manager job came up and I put in for that. And then off I went into the management role. So that's sort of my short <laughs> short history if you like of where where it's all been you know you're, you're totally making the point here that the railway is a really good place if you want to progress so what would you say to any women listening particularly who are thinking about becoming a train driver so I think it's one of them jobs you may not think of straight away but I if you are a person that likes to work on their own if you are good at decision making remaining a calm sometimes in quite stressful situations and I just think if you like something different every day and you want something outside of the normal then I think it's a really good job and and don't be put off thinking you've got to be technically minded necessarily do you know what I mean I my traction course so if I'm going to be I struggled I'm, I'm not a person that is very mechanically minded at all if I'm honest <laughs> My dad would tell you that when my car ran out of oil. There is people there that will help you. There, the training course now, we've got simulators straight away that help so much because when you learn something in a rule book, then you can go and learn on there and, and put it into practice. So whichever way you're capable of learning, whichever learning style we've got, you, you, you cater for more. So don't let that put you off. And your male colleagues were obviously really happy to help you and you know find a way that worked for you. Did you find that they were completely welcoming and you felt part of the team? Oh God, yeah, yeah. I find anything. I think I was spoiled, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. Especially when I first, because I used to be a top table, top table in the mess room. You did not sit on as a junior person, and I was like all oh, these older gentlemen. But I have to say, the ones I I met, I oh well, one of them used to buy me tea and donuts at Peterborough if I used to go rope learning with him. Brilliant. Um, others, yeah, others were only too glad to like when I used to go rope learning. I used to sit and they used to give, describe all the route to me and say, this signal is something around this one and you need to get, you might not see it, so be prepared for it. And, and just all the different knacks of the route that you just think, I'm never going to learn all this. But you do. Yeah, I have to say they were they were really helpful, actually. If anybody listening is interested in a career, then, you know, please do get in touch. We're actually looking to increase the number of women who work for us so we currently have just under 25 percent of the whole workforce are female and out of all of our drivers about six percent are female and we really want that to be 50 percent really you mentioned your dad are you from a railway family mum and dad of no <laughs> but funny thing is when you used to be asked an interview it was do you have family members who are on the railway and I said oh yes I do I have a great-grandfather so my great-grandfather was a train driver but at rugby yeah, and if you speak to my gran when she was alive, bless her, and I told her what I was about to do, she said to me, don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, and please don't swear. So uh, I promised her I wouldn't, but yeah, bless him. He's the only one. They were chuffed to think a female in the family was going to follow their dad, so that was quite nice. Well, I'm sure you've done them all really, really proud. Thank you ever so much. No problem.
It's good to talk to you. Up next is our new train slot, and today I'm speaking to Andrew Goodrum. At the start of the new trains programme, Andrew was Greater Anglia's Business Readiness Director. He was responsible for the huge amount of tasks the company had to do in order to be ready for 191 new trains. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Juliet. I hope you're okay. So you were responsible for making sure the new trains could run on our network. So what did that mean for, say, the stations? Well, Juliet, the stations, there was quite a lot of work for us to do actually to get ready for the new trains to to enter into passenger service so one of the first things we had to do was to check the lighting at the stations was up to the required standard to ensure that there was clear vision for the drivers who would be um, dispatching the trains using the cameras that were going to be built into the side of these new trains so it's really clear that they got clear image into their into their cabs so they could have a good uninterrupted view of all the doors at the side of the trains to ensure that passengers were safely on and off the trains and to be honest some of the lighting out on our more rural stations um, did need to be upgraded quite considerably so that was a big work stream to get that lighting improved before the first trains came into passenger service. Now, one of the great things about the new trains is that they were longer with more seats on board, which is good for our customers and lovely for our colleagues to work on. But for the infrastructure or the, the stations and the platforms themselves, it meant that the trains would be stopping in different positions on the platforms. So we had to make sure that the, the stop car markers, as they called, the little signs that tell the driver where to, to stop were in the right place so the train could fit uh, properly into the platform, but also, of course, the driver had clear view of any signals ahead of the train. It's quite remarkable. You think it's a simple thing. You get a new train, it just replaces an old train. That's that. But the fact that every train is different, that the wheelchair area is in a different place, the bicycle area is in a different place needing new lights for the cameras to work just quite incredible one thing i would say about the wheelchair spaces of course is that on 58 of our new trains we've got level access boarding haven't we but the other ones it's not level access but presumably you've had to get new ramps for those as well the company that manufactured these ramps for us is based on, on the Great Triangular Network in Thetford in Norfolk and they worked with us to, to design and install the, the new ramps along all of our lines at the locations where the ramps were going to be needed to enable customers with wheelchairs to get on and off the trains easily if there wasn't the level access that would work so hard to create. Brilliant. What about staff? I mean, obviously we had to train the drivers, but what other staff needed to be trained to get ready for new trains? Well, the conductors all went through familiarisation with uh, the, the, the new trains. There's a lot of different door controls. The procedures for dispatch was very different. Um, the procedures for helping wheelchair users to get on and off the train were very, very different. There are lots of features on the trains that we hadn't seen before, such as the CCTV, such as the the passenger information systems, the different power sockets, different places for luggage. So they required a real broad familiarisation into to, to the, the construction and, and the workings of, of the train to ensure our customers could enjoy travelling on them safely. 
train presentation colleagues. They need to know all the nooks and crannies of the train, where to clean them, how to clean the sort of equipment, the sort of chemicals that were authorised for use on the, on the trains. So they went through a specialised period of, of training. All areas of the business went through their own specialised training programme. Has it all been worthwhile? Oh, Has there been any definitely. good highlights? Oh yes, I mean a couple of highlights for me I suppose was that the first morning going with the, the first four carriage train down to, to Lowestoft to pick up passengers. Really lovely morning, sunny, going across the swing bridge at Reedham. I remember it really, really well. Just wondering what the reaction would be of, of the customers we're about to pick up. I remember then on the, 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 the way back to Norwich, people were just bowled over by the, the space on board, the, the comfort, the Wi-Fi, being able to, to plug in their, their, their mobile phones. And that was similar on all the routes we went to, be it students. I remember going to Paston College on the, the Bitten line. I remember commuters on the, the Norwich to Cambridge route. Sometimes very early in the morning, we launched these trains at half five or six o'clock, but the reaction was all the same. It was one of, wow, is this is this what they're all going to be like? Or is this first class? Uh, no, this is, this is the, the, the standard of, of train you've now got to enjoy on this route. I suppose the one standout highlight for me was at the end of what was a, a long first day with the, the, the new trains in service. And that was meeting a family who travelled from um, Nottingham and they were on their way to uh, a holiday in Great Yarmouth. And their dad was a wheelchair user and there was mom and two children. And the fact that he could board the train himself, just push, wheel himself onto the train, that the accessible area meant that they could all sit together because there were seats and tables there for them to, to sit at. Uh, and uh, and mum just turned around and said, I can't believe this. She said, this has really changed our, our whole travel experience. This is lovely that we can all travel together as a family. So um, yeah, that was a lasting memory, if you like, from the, from the first day in service. Thank you very much, Andrew. That's absolutely fascinating insight into what you did to bring in the new trains. And thank you very much for everything that you've done. No, you're welcome. So it's time now for Fairs Guru, where I talk to Ken Strong, Greater Anglia's resident ticketing expert. Hi, Ken. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. And today we're speaking about the different ways to buy tickets. So, Ken, can you talk us through some of the various options, please? Well, of course, at most of our large and medium-sized stations, we do have ticket offices where you can buy tickets in the traditional way. Almost every station has a ticket vending machine, which sells a full range of on-the-day tickets to virtually everywhere in the country. But nowadays, more and more people are choosing to go online to buy their tickets, which is a very convenient way of buying tickets, and you can see the full range of tickets on there. And we do have the Greater Anglia website and also the Greater Anglia app. And how can people get the cheapest tickets when buying online? If you're going online... Make sure you specify exactly the journey you want to make and put in, if you're making a return journey, put in both ways at the one time because sometimes a return ticket will be cheaper than two singles, uh, which is a mistake some people make. They buy a single and a single back, which might end up costing them more money. Be flexible in the time that you want to travel. And if you buy from us at Greater Anglia, you won't be charged any booking fees or credit card fees. So when buying online, is it best to book directly with Greater Anglia? Because there are a lot of websites out there where you can buy train tickets. So which is cheapest? It's always better to buy from Greater Anglia because there are no additional fees. The price of the ticket is the price you pay. So the cheapest place to buy tickets online is the Greater Anglia website. That's correct. And what's the advantage of buying e-tickets, smart card tickets over paper tickets? Well, the transaction is contactless, there's no interaction, so it's a very safe way of buying tickets. With e-tickets, they come in a PDF format, 
So you can either print those out if you prefer to have them on a piece of paper or you can have them on your phone and just show the phone with the PDF to the conductor or whoever's examining the tickets and there'll be a barcode on that ticket that'll work the um, automatic ticket gates. That's a safer way to carry tickets than the traditional paper tickets which you could easily lose. Thank you so much again, Ken, for your advice and I'll see you back in the next episode. Thanks very much. Today on Mythbusters we're going to talk about our new trains and specifically how to find a seat on a new train. A lot of people are returning to the railway so we just want to put the record straight on a few things. So Juliet, the older trains had four, eight or twelve carriages and now they have five or ten. So some people might think that that's a reduction in service rather than an improvement. So what's really going on? Yes, our new trains have much longer carriages with more seats. So a five-carriage train is much longer than a four-carriage train. And of course, there's other great features of those trains. They're, They're longer, they've got more seats, they've got all the mod cons that people would expect, including air conditioning. And the air conditioning sucks new air, fresh air, into the carriage every six to nine minutes which means it's a lot safer. The ventilation is much better. And of course, the doors open at stations as well, allowing more fresh air into the carriages. Are there actually more seats on the new trains though? And how can people find a seat when the trains look busy? Is there a way that people could get on? and find out where a seat is available. Yes, there is. The new trains are longer and and generally have more seats than the old trains that they replace. Certainly, a new 10-carriage train has more seats than an old 12-carriage train. And there's this really handy new bit of technology in every single carriage. There's this wonderful passenger information screen. You look up and you see it's got all sorts of symbols on it and it tells you where you're going and what time you're going to arrive. But the thing that's really handy is it tells you whether there are seats available in other carriages and it's got this colour coding system. So if it's all green, that means there's loads of seats everywhere. If it goes orange, the carriage is full. But then there's something in between. If there's one bit of green, there's not that many seats, but there are still seats. If there's two blocks of green, then there's quite a lot of seats, but there are some taken. If it's all green, loads of seats. And the other thing that I would say is don't always get on the train in exactly the same place as everybody else. If you get on where everybody else gets on, and that's usually the coach nearest the entrance to the station where you get on or nearest the entrance to the station where you get off, then more seats are going to be taken. So walk further down the platform to get on the train. And if it is busy, please be considerate to other passengers. Take your bag off the seat definitely don't have your feet on the seat because your feet should never be on the seat especially on our lovely brand new trains and let people sit in those seats okay so spread out that's good advice i think what i've found while i've been traveling as well is that the middle seat is often free when you have three seats together people don't want to sit in the middle one which is quite odd considering that when we're on the underground we all sit next to each other And I understand that some people might not be feeling safe or might not be used to sitting next to strangers. So what measures are we taking to make sure that people are kept safe and so that 
they're fine to sit in the middle seat. We are still keeping on with cleaning and sanitising our trains. We're still using the fogging guns and those are the bit of cleaning kit that spray a fine mist of disinfectant all over the place. And after a train has arrived at a destination and before it goes off on its new journey, our cleaners go in and they will use disinfectant to wipe down all surfaces. We've got our vacuum cleaners that clean the air as well as the seats and the floor and we are asking customers please follow public health advice and wear a face covering because it keeps us all safe and a lot of our customers are continuing to do that and thank you very much to all customers who are still wearing face coverings. Another myth I would like to bust is the size of the new seats. I know some people think the seats on the new trains are more narrow than the old ones but that's not the case is it? They look narrow because they've got higher headrests and backs than on the old trains. And so when you look at this sea of seats, because obviously there's no doors between carriages, the perception is that it's narrower. But actually, I've been on both an old train and a new train and checked it and there's really no difference it is just a perception and it's because we've tried to make the seats more comfortable so you can rest your head and so that it's got the lumbar support and the perception is that the seats are narrower than on the old seats brilliant so spread out down the train spread out down the platform and look for those green signs on the information screens juliet thank you so much thanks very much Up next is travel surgery and Juliet and I are sitting down with David Whiteley to pick his dream Greater Anglia travel destination. David's a TV presenter. He co-presents ITV News Anglia with Betty Jago and is a brilliant ambassador for the region. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on on the podcast. Brilliant. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, what your job is, in case people don't know? Okay. well, my job as of last June, June 2021, is I co-present ITV News Anglia with Becky Jago every evening 6pm on ITV and uh, yeah we present the news with, with Becky. We have a fantastic reporting team across the entire east of England. What some people don't know, it's a slightly guarded secret but I can tell you, is that we do two programmes. So one is recorded, one is live because the region is so big and it all happens from, from the studios in Norwich. But of course, we, we cover, you know, right out to Milton Keynes, down to South End, to Northamptonshire, Cambridgeshire, you know, of course, Norfolk. Suffolk and Essex and it's it's just a huge area so diverse with so many stories and so many wonderful people and you mentioned there Juliet about you know me being an ambassador for the region you know, I was I was born in East Anglia I was born in, in in Essex and have lived here and worked here all my life I very much uh, you know live work and play in, in East Anglia so it's it's great to kind of champion the place and the people where you live. And I guess in your role, you must have met a huge number of people from this region. Yeah, I've, I've probably conducted literally thousands of interviews over a 27-year career. And it's only when you think of that, you think, wow, I've met some amazing people and people who make you feel very humble, who you're in awe of, people you've kind of had to give a bit of a hard time, some people you've had to put on the spot. It's normally okay afterwards. But yeah, it's, it's amazing how many people I've met and, and, and interviewed. I guess that curiosity means that you get the most out of people and, and you're constantly finding something new. Absolutely. Well, you'll know all too well. It's, it's a journey of discovery, isn't it? I mean, it sounds a bit naff, but it's, it is true. It's, it's 
you know, you start with something. I and mean, I remember a former colleague of mine, Stuart White, the legendary Stuart White from Look East, said to me many, 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 many years ago, he said, you have to have one good question and then listen. So I think that's that's something very special. That's interesting. Now, you mentioned Look East. Now, of course, your wife is Amelia Reynolds, who presents Look East. So is the, <laughs> is the massive rivalry. What What is your family? Are you a Look East family or are you an ITV Anglia family? Uh, it's funny. That's an interesting one. We both watch both. Obviously, I was at the BBC for many, many years. I was there for nearly 23 years. And Amelia and I presented the news together at times. And and now uh, I'll be on air with Becky, you know, 6 till 6.30. And then I come off air and then we, we walk into the newsroom for our kind of debrief and chat to all the team. And then on the screen is Amelia doing doing Look East on the other side. So it's, I don't know, we, we kind of compare notes. We don't tell each other what's going on, though. We don't, we don't kind of, you know, so I think post an event we will. We certainly don't. Uh, we certainly keep it professional. You know, if, if I if I hear her talking to a colleague about something, I, I sometimes get the uh, satisfaction. Of, we did that last week. There are times when when you know it could be the other way around. But it, it yeah, it's a it's a friendly rivalry, and, and Amelia's really proud that you know she's she's very proud that I, I got the job. So if you had just twenty four hours, just one day to spend anywhere in the region, what would you do? What would be your sort of dream day? I get up really early. I get up in the if it was in the summer, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for me to get up at 2.30 in the morning when it's God. in the middle of, you know, June <laughs> and you've got, you know, first light can be 3am. So I'll be at the beach for 3, 3.30. And I could, and I would surf on the morning tide with my friends and see the sunrise and then probably have a breakfast. I probably have breakfast at North Sea Coffee because my friends there, they're surfers as well. They've built that business right on the front. And I'd probably have I'd probably have coffee and, and, and breakfast there. And then we'd probably surf again. <laughs> so we'd probably go for another surf again after that. And then I might invite the children along as well in the afternoon because my, my kids love the sea and, and, and Amelia, we all love the beach. And then we'd probably take the dog for a walk. We also really love Salt House. I mean, we'd probably go to Salt House in the afternoon after that. Salt House is great. And then have a meal in the Dunkow, which is which is one of our favourite places to, to have something to eat. But yeah, we... But we love that beach. It's it's. Um, I'm probably spoiling it now. Everyone's going to know about Salt House Beach, but it's it's just a it's a really great beach. And the dog, the dog loves it. He he, he whimpers with excitement when he knows he's there. He's just very very excited. And and we all just run over and and yeah, it's a it's a special place. So yeah, so that would and then probably watch the sunset and have a beer. That would be. Cool. Yeah, that would do. That would do, I reckon. That'd be an incredibly long day. And then I think collapse into bed after all of that. Yeah, one beer and then be fast asleep, <laughs> Juliet. One beer. Yeah. I think apart from the very early morning, it sounds fabulous. David, you do like travelling by train, don't you? You've travelled quite a lot around our local network. When I used to spend a lot of time on the road, it was always a relief to get the train and know that you could go to London, you know, from Norwich on the line, on the Greater Anglia line, and, and kind of think, oh, do you know what? I haven't got to worry about driving to London or driving somewhere. One particular part I really love is when is when the, the train gets to Manningtree and you kind of see the estuary open up and it's just... It's just very special if the, the sun's catching the, the sea and the estuary there, the tide's in. It's a very beautiful spot. And I think, you know, if you do spend a lot of time looking out the window instead of scrolling through your phone, as a lot of us are guilty of at times, you can really see, you know, such amazing parts of, of the region from the train. Well, I, I think we've got a perfect trip for you. You love the coast. You like travelling by train. What I would recommend to you is next time you're looking for a day out, maybe with the family, is get on the train at Norwich and go to Lowestoft. It's a really lovely, really beautiful line. You like water. 
you go past loads of water. There's the River Waveney, which at some point seems even higher than the train track. And so it's really weird that you're in a train and you look out of the window and there's a boat at a higher level than you. And you go past Alton Broad. And then when you get to Lowestoft, you come in next to the harbour. So you're travelling next to all these boats. It's a really scenic line. But it's not just the water, it's also the stations. There's some beautiful stations along the way with amazing gardens. At Cantley, they've got a boat and they're creating a sail made out of flowers, which looks really pretty. Summer Layton has an incredible garden. And in fact, they've done this planting to attract scarce butterflies. And then, of course, when you get to Lowestoft, well wonderful sandy beach and the most easterly station the most easterly point in the whole of the uk so fish and chips maybe a little beer um just a perfect little trip you're selling it to me juliet you are i mean it, it, i don't think i've ever i know amelia's done that line many many years ago when the when the children were little but i've never been on that one and i didn't realize it went through the waveney of course it does yeah and you've got such in summer Layton's beautiful and, and and I know that easterly point very well I've filmed many an occasion on that most easterly point of the UK and I think I think Lowestoft's underrated I think it's I think it's a very special place the beaches are vast it's definitely a route for looking out of the window the lovely big picture windows on the new trains yeah fantastic yeah well thanks very much for joining us well it's been my pleasure yeah. thank you and be sure to take up our recommendation I, I don't think you'll be disappointed Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much for having me on the podcast. We've reached the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed learning more about Greater Anglia. Please do leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform and tweet us at Greater Anglia PR. Life on Rails releases every six weeks, so be sure to check back soon for episode five. And in the meantime, follow or subscribe to the podcast for free so you never miss an episode. And visit our website at www.greateranglia.co.uk forward slash podcast for more information. Thanks for joining us. Bye.